Yeah, when that bass crashes in, you know it's time to begin. And wherever you are, whenever you are, and however you happen to be listening, we're so glad you've chosen to tune in to DLC, especially if you're one of our geeks and sneaks using this podcast to get you through a workout or a run. We're going to be with you for 90 plus minutes because DLC is your downloadable commentary for the week delivered the way we love it to be. And that is completely free. Thanks to our sponsors this week, Mac Weldon and Squarespace. Squarespace! They made that possible, bringing the show to you. DLC, of course, the show all about games in their many forms. Games played on desktops, laptops, and consoles, and also games that involve dice, luck, and cardboard. I'm your host, Jeff Kanata, which is spelled with two N's and one T, and I'm joined, as always, by my friend slash co-host slash nemesis... The guy who is hoping that Leap Day William will bring him lots of candy today, Mr. Christian Spicer. Hello, Christian. Hello, Jeff. My Leap Day William just showed up and yelled freedom, and then at the end, he got his intestines pulled out. Oh, that's not usually what Leap Day William ha- has happened, but but uh, interesting. Interesting. <laughs> is William Wallace is your Leap Day William? Is what yeah, he was a little aggressive. Yeah, are you celebrating Leap Day? Are you are you taking advantage of this extra day to do the things you normally wouldn't do and take chances? By doing the thing that I do every Monday in the show? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, happy Leap Day, everybody. We're going to talk games, and we have an awesome guest with us. Of course, you know that DLC always stands for your downloadable Kanata, your downloadable Christian. But this week, we're excited because DLC stands for Demoing Littler Creations, because we have the founder of the Indie Mega Booth and the chairman of the IGF, Ms. Kelly Wallach. Hi, Kelly. Hello. Thank you for having me on the show. Thanks for being here. We're excited to have you. We're big fans of indie games here. In fact, I have a couple in my playlist this week yeah. that I'm excited to talk about. But um, I'm so curious about how you how this all started. How did you found the uh, Indie Mega Booth, and and you know what how, what was the process by which it came into being? Well, so actually, I want to back up. What is Leap Year William? <laughs> is that a real oh, it's person? A very obs- <laughs> it's a very obscure reference to 30 Rock. They invented, okay. a, they invented a, uh, a an Easter Bunny-esque uh, character, yeah. Leap Day William. Leap they Day say William. that Leap Day William lives in the Mariana Trench and emerges every four years to trade children's tears for candy. Hey, I like that. It's actually, so my birthday is tomorrow. So my birthday is on March 1st. So every four years, it's one day later. Oh, wow. So this is actually like my kind of, well, it was worse when I first turned 21. I, it was on a leap year. And so yeah. I went I went around to all these like bars with my license. And I was like, I swear I would have been 21 today. You should let me <laughs> in. No, nobody bought it. It was not working. That's amazing. <laughs> you you were so close to being only like six years old now, yeah. right? Yeah. I, I forget yeah. if like, yeah, when I, I forget if the year that I was born counts as one. I thought it was, but I don't, because it was 83. So I guess that's not, I don't yeah. know if it's a leap year, but anyways. Wow. Um, cool. Now that now that I know what the the kind of like leap year fairy. Yes. Now you'll <laughs> you'll celebrate leap day, William, every four years. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> um. Yeah. So the indie mega booth is something we're going on our fifth year, actually. So it's been going on for a while. <laughs> um. It's something that when I was looking to get into the games industry, I don't know how much you guys know about my background, but I used to be a scientist. So I worked as a chemist before I got into video games. Wow. Um, <laughs> that's cool yeah in this very like super scientist kind of like crazy way but I was looking to start my own company and my sister also wanted to start a company but she wanted to start a video game company I was going to start a biotech company 
And I thought that the video game stuff sounded fun. We'd always play games together. So we started going to local meetups in um, Boston, got to know more people uh, as things were going along. I was helping out Firehose Games, which is um, a company that's based in Boston. And we were at PAX one year and Aton, the um, guy who heads up Firehose Games was like, oh, we should get all of our, all the companies that we know in Boston together and just buy out a big section of the show floor. Because at that time they just kind of like scattered indie games along like in packs and stuff like in the mm-hmm. sort of outer edges and everyone kind of like doesn't know who's there and press isn't really interested in finding anything out about you because you're like in between a bunch of like i don't know like random companies and like, yeah yeah league of stuff. legends is casting a shadow over yeah. you and <laughs> tanks is blasting their music yeah. and you're just trying to you know have your have your game about finding love and the and the frozen tundra yeah, exactly. And you like have a sign that you just like printed out, you know, the day before. Yeah. Somebody's like, wow, they flew in a dragon. Like, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's going to come and look at your booth when it's like this kind of like sad thing in the corner. Um, yeah, so I thought it was a great, I, I love the concept of it. And at the time, I was just starting to get in the games industry. I'd switched to um, working as a project manager at a um, contract shop in Boston. So I was like, well, this would be a really great opportunity to meet game developers, learn about I guess what their kind of challenges are, how they market their games, you know, organizing an event sounded like a fun thing at the time. So I volunteered to, to like logistically run it. And after the first time that we did it, everybody had a really great time with it. And then it was kind of like, well, should we do this again for PAX Prime? And then it kind of became this like, well, how do I get in for next PAX East? And how do I do this? And it kind of just became, it went from being this, like, is this a good idea to like, we're going to keep doing this, right? <laughs> so at some point, uh, it just got to be a little bit much where it was either I had to quit my day job or I had to quit running the mega booth. And so about two and a half years ago or so, I quit um, my day job and started as a full-time company. So now we have, um, we just brought on some new people, but for a while it was just me and uh, one other person, Chris Floyd. And we just brought on two new uh, full-time people starting in January. So now we're up to an impressive four people <laughs> doing this. Uh, we have tons of volunteers and the companies all pitch in and help. Uh, we have Ryan and Eric who have been volunteering and working with us during the shows, like since the very first um, time that we ran it. So, well, yeah. <laughs> you know, having been, having been to every PAX now, I'm, I'm proud to hey. say I, I always look forward to the Indie Mega Booth. It's, I think it's my favorite place in the entire show floor and my favorite thing to do because you get to see such exciting, vibrant, uh, original ideas on display. And, and I'm curious how you guys cultivate the games that, that how do you decide on which games make it and which games don't? And how do you find all these cool new developers? Yeah. So the very first time that we ran it, it was kind of, it, it, we were in a lucky situation where the teams that were attending shows like this were already kind of like top tier indie developers. So we had people like, um, like Cappy and Monaco showed with us and Annie Chamber before that had come out. And like kind of all these, like all these people in games now that you think of as like staples of the indie scene at the time were some of the only indie developers that were going to large consumer events like this. So when Aton was doing the reach out to developers. These were the kind of teams that we were getting that would be interested in working with us. Um, we actually even had, um, uh, what's the company that's making No Man's Sky? Um, oh, gosh. Um, and they, they had that racing game, or they had, it was like you were like a... Yes. Uh, anyways, yes. they were like kind of an unofficial, official like mega booth for like one of our first shows and stuff too. So it was like teams like that that were already going to these events. Um, and right. then it was only by referral initially, like hello games. Shows. Yeah. Hello games. Right. Yeah. And I like, I had it on the tip of my tongue. Yeah. yeah so I'm seeing like... that. I'm going to visit them tomorrow. I should know. Oh, awesome. 
<laughs> well, now you know. Yes. Um, yeah. So, and then it just started to only be referral because, and if you look at the numbers, the first time we ran, it was 16 games. And then the next time it was 32, which is basically everybody was like pulled in one of their friends. Um, and we used to do it like that where we would kind of like not distribute out a link or anything like that. It was just only personal referrals. And then it got to be like, mm-hmm. this is my friend. And then this is my friend of a friend. And then a friend of a friend of a friend <laughs> and like random people. Um, so then we started doing like actual formal curation for it. And now we have a um, like a whole backend system that's kind of similar to if you were to submit to IGF or something like that, mm-hmm. uh, where you put in a build and we ask a bunch of questions. And then there's like maybe 20 of us, 15 or 20 of us that play through about two or 300 games every six months. Wow. <laughs> to, yeah, I, I'm, I think at this point I'm playing about five or 600 games a year. Like oh my gosh, here. what's that experience like? I mean, are you are you? See, I'm sure you're seeing a whole wide variety of of quality. You're seeing a whole crazy number of 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 ideas and and things that probably will never see the light of day in a lot of ways. You know, what's that experience like? Um, I mean, at first it's definitely like it's fun, right? Because you're playing a bunch of video games, but also it's it can be kind of tough, like in the same way where you play games to QA it. You know, like you're playing yeah. games that are kind of broken, or you're looking at it with a critical eye as opposed to just playing it for fun. And even though it sounds like it would right. be fun to play games for eight hours a day for seven days a week, that's actually kind of hard <laughs> Yeah, uh, when it's in that context. But it's really cool because we get to see kind of like trends a little bit before they become public. So like when local multiplayer games started to be a thing, like we would have kind of an overset, like an overrepresentation of those types of games in it. Mm-hmm. Um, or like when FTL came out, then it was like space games or then it was like zombie games and these kind of like, or maybe like new mechanics or maybe people using new types of um, like hardware and platforms and things like that. So it's kind of right. fun to see like a little bit of a trend, like, ooh, it's going to be coming up over the next six months or over the next year. Um, That's so and, cool. Yeah. And to be able to get a chance to, like you said, see these things that are like really interesting, very innovative, uh, super creative. And a lot of games, like we don't get a lot of really bad games. Like the, they tend not to have too much of that. There's a lot of stuff that's in the middle that's like, it either needs a little bit more time to kind of like sit, you know, and grow into something mm-hmm. else, or maybe like they need a little bit more time or a little bit more play testing or something like that. Um, but aside from just the game, we also really research the companies themselves and the teams and learn more about them to make sure that they're helping to contribute to the community positively. Like if we think that they would benefit from showing at the show or benefit from mentorship or could mentor other teams and things like that. So it's this whole kind of like, ecosystem that we're trying to create so we actually learn a lot about all the companies and all the teams every time that we do this that's super cool and yeah. and in a couple of weeks we'll be uh we'll, i'll be up at uh, gdc i know you guys are going to have an indie mega booth there uh, is there anything you can yes. tease us about what what might be some great stuff that i definitely need to catch um well so there's only 15 games at our gdc showcase which makes it much easier to kind of parse yeah. than the um than the full Indie Mega Booth ones, which can be like 70 or 80 games. But this year we were really focusing on um, kind of like new and upcoming teams. So teams that are like very young developers or haven't showed something before. Um, and so we're kind of hoping that there's there's things that are in here that people, the developers can get inspired by meeting the teams and stuff that come to GDC. But then also other developers can kind of get ideas from like these kind of create like crazy creative like young teams, you know, that are trying like a little bit of weird stuff or they like yeah. have some good ideas, but might need a little bit of like play testing or like developer specific help. 
Yeah. If you throw a game at PAX and somebody doesn't like it, they'll just say like, oh, I don't like it. Or this is too hard. Where like a developer will play it and say, this is too hard because like you should push this button instead of this button or you should jump Mm -hmm. here or it should do this or something like that. So I think some people really benefit um, from that kind of feedback. And so I think a lot of these games are that where they're kind of like these like very interesting concepts that need some like either need some exposure to the rest of the development community or maybe need like a little bit of play testing for them to be like, ah, that's the like. That's, Sweet that's spot. Where, yeah, that, that's yeah. what I need to look at or that's what I need to test. So there's a lot of like really cool, weird mechanic stuff. So I'm like, yeah, I, I think I have a hard time picking favorites. So I'm like, play all 15 of them. <laughs> I will. Uh, I think, I mean, I think the development community benefits in both directions, right? That yeah. young, the young people with the big ideas, uh, you know, have that have that exposure to sort of find the sweet spot for, for what needs to be worked on. But I think the, uh, the seasoned pros get that cool influx of original thinking. And, and I think that goes a long way too. Um, uh, do, one more question before we kind of move on to the yeah. meat of the show. Would you have any like one or two big recommendations if there are any very young developers listening or people aspiring to be developers and want to make their own indie game? Are there, is there one or two things that you see all the time or that might be problematic that you could give someone a bit of advice right now. Yeah. I was like, I could write a novel on this. I actually just wrote <laughs> up this huge email to a, a student team that had submitted the game to the mega booth. That was kind of around this stuff. I mean, I think, so my background is in the project management side of things. And so I think I see a lot of teams that are like an artist and a developer and they have an idea of what they want to make, but they don't have any sort of like concrete outside influence on like when they need to have things done or, or kind of keeping them in check. And I think it can extend development times for an extremely long amount of time. Like you might look back at a game that took three or five years and be like, we could have done that in two if, you know, we had really condensed it. But then that's also a lot of indie teams tend to like design and create the game as they're going along with it. Um, And so it's kind of, you know, the hindsight is 2020. Like you can look back and be like, if we knew the game that we were going to make at the end, we could have just sat down and did it from start to finish. But I think that the idea of how long your game is going to take and deciding how you're going to finance that for yourself, like, is this going to be a hobby and you have a, a daytime job, you know, and you do it on the side to pay the bills? Do you have like family or a spouse or something that will financially support you through it? Do you just have money that you saved up from a job or something along those lines? Because I think it's kind of this it's this weird situation where because indie games are seen as artistic and kind of like a passion project that there's a lot of teams that just exist on zero money for years and years and years on end, which is totally fine, but kind of expecting or understanding that going into it, I think can be very important. And the second big thing I think is identifying who you're making the game for. Like if you want to sell the game, even if you don't want to sell the game, I guess if you just want critical approval or you just want to make a game or something like like what like who who will be looking and playing this game like who is your audience and who are you making this game for aside from yourself and for the creative endeavor um because i think there's plenty of times where there's an interesting game and then it kind of doesn't financially do well and the reasoning could or part of the reasoning is that like who who was this game supposed to be marketed to or who is this game supposed to be made for um and if it's just an artsy weird game that's totally fine but like just go into it kind of realizing that those are the people that are going to like your game and find a way to connect with them. Yeah. It's that intersection where art has to meet commerce and has to meet business sense. Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of people get into it for the art stuff and don't realize that the other half is, is equally important, if not more so. Um, Christian, you and I can, uh, can vouch for the, having the family slash spouse that 
that <laughs> supports supports your your passion, right? I don't know what you're talking about. No, my wife is <laughs> on me all day. My kids, I'm just, uh, I lock them up to do the show and to play games. And, yeah, my uh, art is in spite of my family. <laughs> uh, well, we're, we're super excited to have your perspective uh, for the rest of the show as well, Kelly. Thanks for being Thank here the, the whole time. We'll, yeah. uh, we'll jump into how we normally start the show, which is with Story of the Week. Story of the Week, it's the Story of the Week. Story of the Week, it's the Story of the Week. Story of the Week is the part of the show where we make our case for the most important stories that happened in the world of games this week. Uh, Kelly, as our guest, you get first pick of stories. So is there a story that you would consider to be your story of the week? Ooh, out of the links that you had sent earlier? Yeah, or or, or anything that you might have on the the top of your head? Um, I kind of thought the HoloLens article was super interesting um i'm i'm really into the kind of like the movement of the vr and augmented reality and i guess holographic uh me too all these kinds of things so i was i was just watching the video before we started on this and i was like man how freaky would it be to have someone sitting on a couch next to you (laughs) talking like your actual couch not like the fake vr couch or something yeah exactly about solving this mystery or something yeah, so, so uh, basically, it's funny because last week, I think it was just last week, right, Christian, that we talked about how uh, the the head of design for HoloLens was talking about how we have no we have no <laughs> um, no time frame. We're going to let this thing bake as long as it needs to, and yada yada yada. And then all of a sudden, one week later, hey, dev version, you can buy it. It's three grand. So this is really not a consumer facing product. It really is designed for for developers to make new products. But it's pretty exciting stuff, in my opinion. Uh, this is the full hollow lens. It looks like a pretty uh, well-designed product. It doesn't look like it's got, um, you know, developer kit kind of rough edges uh, from at least from a design perspective. And it also comes with um, some software that looks really cool. As Kelly was mentioning, the, um, the, the developer kit comes with three games and a bunch of other kind of experiences. Uh, a new Conquer game from Rare. Uh, which has Conquer kind of running around your actual environment, your actual geometry in whatever room you play it in. So it's a platformer that uses the platforms in the real world as uh, as the level. So basically they're saying that every person that plays this is going to play a very different game. And even you can play a different game if you just walk into a different room and play it in a different room. It changes the game completely. Pretty cool idea. And then this other thing, uh, this fragments thing, which is what they're calling a mixed reality crime drama that has, uh, as Kelly mentioned, s- someone sitting next to you and you kind of interact with them and talk with them on your couch and interview them and try to figure out the the crime. Um, this is sort of um, Molyneux's Milo uh, fi- finally realized, perhaps, Um Exciting stuff. I, I'm excited as well. Although, uh, you know, still not a consumer product, but um, I, I think we can expect Kelly some some IGF and uh, Mega Booth participants using this thing in the near future. Don't you think? Yeah, I mean, we've definitely gotten a good influx of VR games, and we've had them for a while. And we tend to try to want to show them off in the Mega Booth specifically, since consumers really have don't have much opportunity to play VR. Whereas, like, if you're involved with the development community, not like it's old news, but you know, right. it's been around, and people have been kind of like actively developing for it for a while. Um, yeah, and it's some some of the coolest ideas I've seen at uh, you know at PAXs in in the indie Mega Booth. You, you put on a Oculus Dev Kit, and you're like, oh my gosh, when can I get this myself? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think there actually even is one of the finalists for IGF is a Vive game. 
which is a uh, fantastic contraption, which right. is an older game, but there's a new version of it for VR, which I've actually tested before and is super cool. Really yeah, interesting. A, so we, yeah. yeah, we have to have like a whole special setup and everything in the IGF like pavilion for it because you can't just like put it on a PC. <laughs> you yeah. have to have like a whole little room. Yeah. And, and HTC thought enough of that game to make it a pack in exclusive if you pre-order the Vive. So oh, that's um, awesome. yeah. Uh, Christian, um, this is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the way that they framed this, uh, whatever, either it was last week or two weeks ago saying, Hey, we're letting it cook. HoloLens isn't ready. It's not coming out anytime soon. Slow your roll. And then coming out with this developer kit is a smart approach to it. Whereas I think if they hadn't said anything a week ago or whenever it was, and then this comes out, I think you would have seen, oh my God, this is so expensive. Uh, It is dead in the water. Never going to work. Conquer on your living room. This is dumb. This isn't the conquer I want. But I think they did a really good job for once setting expectations and now coming out with a dev kit that is you know, 20 times the price of an Oculus dev kit when those were coming out. But I don't think there's anyone getting upset about it because Microsoft has said, hey, we're working on it. We want it to be great. Here's yeah. kits for developers to make great things on it. Let's make great things together. And um, hopefully, my, ho- my hope is that the price point and the, the software means that people that buy this thing to develop on it have an idea, kind of like Kelly was saying for you know, people making indie games before you dump 30 K into a piece of hardware, hopefully you have an idea of what your vision is going to be and not, uh, it's a roller coaster. <laughs> or yeah. Something. Yeah. This is definitely for like early tech adopters. And, and I was reading here and I, I didn't realize, uh, that it was for developers only until it like mentioned it a little bit later, which I think is like, it's kind of smart. I'm hoping that they're giving out some of them for free to like smaller teams, just because it would be cool to see a little more like, kind of creativity put into it as aside from someone who's like fully committed to like, yeah, we're definitely going to do the HoloLens to someone's going to be like, I wonder if it'll do this, you know, yeah. and play around with it. Um, and make yeah. It it's totally uh, commercially viable. Totally. I, I completely agree. And I, I would suspect that is the case. I mean, yeah. they haven't said explicitly, but yeah, not just anybody can buy these. You actually have to apply to mm. be able to buy them. They're, they're not, it's not just, Hey, I pay three grand. I can have one too. You actually have to apply as a developer. And so it, it very much is not meant to be a consumer product, but I think that's good. As we've, as we've been saying, I think um, having more different types of of experiences that that developers are working on than just the internal Microsoft ones, I think will will show really the possibilities of what this thing can do. My my one worry, having used it, uh, having used at least a version of the Hololens at E three last year, um, is is exactly what you're talking about, Christian, as far as setting expectations. Because every piece of video that they show. I think misrepresents what the experience is really like. It is an extraordinary experience to use the HoloLens, but it is not what those videos purport. They, you really do have a very narrow field of view that includes the virtual stuff, that includes the the graphics, right? There's a very tiny part of what you see that can display that. So yes, you'll have this person sitting next to you when you're looking directly at the person, but move your head slightly to the left or right and they disappear and you can still see the part of the couch where they're supposed to be empty in your peripheral vision. And I think that breaks the immersion a lot, having to sort of just look at the world through that narrow postage stamp. And I'm really hoping that by the time this thing actually becomes a consumer product, that field of view has expanded and that experience becomes a lot more like what those videos seem to indicate. Yeah, when I was um, talking to uh, people that were working on developing like the VR systems and things like that, like one of the one of the big 
kind of concerns was that when you go to touch something, your hand just falls through it. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, and this is before they started doing the controllers and things like that, which sort of solves that problem a little bit. But right. that was that was the concern was that doing that was going to somehow like break, break the immersion because your mind is thinking like, oh, this is all real. This is here. And then you reach out to touch something. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, wait, no, 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 it's not real. Like this was just a projection or something like that. So yeah. I, I didn't know that the HoloLens had did that. That's I haven't actually been able to test it. So it, it's kind of curious to hear that, like, maybe that is the case, right? Like it's it's so kind of like jarring that you know it's fake, that yeah. I wonder how much that like that ruins the sort of immersion of it. Or if it's just more like a like kind of almost like a toy, you know, instead of like an experience, I guess. Yeah. It it's it's extraordinary when you're looking right at it. And it really I can't un- underscore that enough. But yeah. it also did let me down because I really expected it to transform my entire field of view, which mm-hmm. is which is what you want. You want to, you know, you want to feel like you are your physical location has been transformed in some way. And and you do not feel that when you wear the current version of the HoloLens, at least in my experience. Do you know, do they have anything that's more like, I'm imagining like Minority Report where you're kind of like waving your hands around and like using your computer? Do they have anything like that for it? Or well, the the motion, the leap motion kind of is, is doing that. And I know that they're working on AR stuff as well. And um, I think there's another company whose name escapes me at the moment that's doing stuff like that as well. So I think you'll find an intersection of those kinds of things when, and I know that, I know that uh, HoloLens right now also looks at your gestures. Um, so you are able to do very simplistic gestures with the, with the HoloLens and it will recognize them. And in the video they showed like the guy, sh- you know, pointing his feet or, finger and shooting lasers at stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's some of that, but I don't know how, how advanced it is right now. Hmm. Um, Christian, how about you? What's your uh, what's your story of the week this week? Oh man, the rumor train is barreling down the track. <laughs> the NX rumors are are leaking. Um, an individual, Gino, has had a successful track record before with some uh, gossip, some scoops, and uh, now they're dropping some Nintendo NX stuff. And before I really say what those leaks allegedly are, for me, the biggest thing now the NX has against it is. Um, my hype and expectations because holy moly, <laughs> I want this thing to be real. It's a handheld uh, device with the screen and inputs and whatever that is allegedly on par with power of the Xbox One. It also has an HDMI dongle that plugs into the back of the handheld device that you can unplug and put in the back of your TV or any HDMI uh, equipped input device. And then using a beefed up version of the Wii U's streaming tech will take whatever is on the handheld screen and put it up onto your your big, beautiful TV or whatever. And uh, the analog sticks have haptic feedback. So if you run Mario into a wall, your sticks will kind of bounce back, which you know seems akin to the, the rumble triggers on the Xbox One, which I think are really cool. And uh, apparently it's super easy to develop for. You can just plug and play almost if you have an Xbox One or PS4 game. Also, everyone gets a unicorn. <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> For me, if this is real and it's it's portable, I am 100% okay with the Nintendo coming in at the quote-unquote current-gen graphical fidelity level and not going like PS5 or, you know, pushing the standards. But at the same time, I'm sitting right next to my Xbox One right now. And by sitting right next to, I mean my Xbox One takes up half of my room. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know how this thing is portable, but now, now this is all I want. Like if it comes out with something less than this, I'll be like, Nintendo disappointed me, which is <laughs> totally unfair. Uh, yeah. So, so to reiterate, 
This is from a NeoGAF poster who, as you said, has some experience being right about things, but we don't know that this is any of this is true or some of this is true or anyway, but, but, (laughs) but it does sound pretty cool, but it doesn't it, Christian, doesn't it sound a a lot like the NVIDIA shield? No, the the NVIDIA shield isn't as powerful. The NVIDIA shield is running Android and, uh, as its operating system and is capable of playing, you know, indie games and who likes indie games? Gross. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) Um, this, this sounds like uh, a Nintendo handheld that's as powerful as the Xbox One. And the, the NeoGAF rumors that you were talking about are also saying, tip of the hat to me, maybe being right, is maybe uh, Zelda is coming day and date with this thing. This thing's coming out this year. I mean, Nintendo, seriously, I get that you're secretive. Apple's the same way. A lot of companies are like this. But when the hype gets in front of the horse, it's really, it's a dangerous place. And my hype is so far in front of the horse my hype is winning all the triple crowns. You know what I mean? Like- <laughs> well, you left out you left out a couple of things. Uh, it supposedly has Bluetooth sync, so you can uh, you can answer phone calls with it. Uh huh. <laughs> thank it. goodness. Thank goodness. Um, it also is supposed to have expanded uh, stuff that the you know that the Nintendo devices have been doing lately, which is like that AR you know card reader stuff, expanded multiplayer, more Street Pass kind of uh, impl- I- implementation. Uh, they're talking ha- about Pokemon Go, the commercial for Pokemon Go being an example of where they want to go with this device. And um, that's not all. It also slaps and chops vegetables. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, what do you think, Kelly? Are you are you excited for a potential all handheld home console for for Nintendo? Uh, I guess I'm not really sure how I feel about that. So I actually I mostly play PC games, and I I have had consoles in the past, and. I don't really have any of the current gen ones and it's mostly just because I'm not really home all that often to play games. So a lot of times when I'm playing, it has to be something that'll run on my laptop or like a handheld um, game or something like that. So this is actually kind of interesting in the sense where like if I could play real games while I'm traveling and not have to like be lugging around a gaming laptop or something like that, like that could be interesting. But I'm wondering, like you were saying, like, you know, your Xbox one taking up half the room, like how portable how portable can this actually be? Is it portable in the sense that, yeah, you could technically carry it and not look ridiculous? Or is it like actually <laughs> It comes with a backpack. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> like yeah. I used to have a Game Gear, right? And like I'd find it every once in a while when I'm moving. And like when I was a kid, I was like, oh, this is cool. This is so portable. And I pick it up now and I'm like, this thing is giant. And I had like a little like sling case, you know, and it like <laughs> carried all the games and stuff. And it was like a thing, right? Like you don't, you don't, you carry that and you don't carry anything else around with you. Yeah. Um, but I do really like I have such a soft spot for Nintendo consoles that I always want I always want them to be winning the kind of like console wars. So like right. when the Wii first came out, well, you get uh, dip- disappointed a lot, don't you? Yeah, well, uh, so well, so one of the last times that I, I played the Nintendo systems was when the Wii was coming out. I was actually working at a EB Games, which like got bought out by GameStop later. So it was kind of at the height of like xbox playstation and then the wii just came out and everyone was super excited about it and it was fun to see like families and kids and all that coming in to like play these consoles so it's just i'm i would love for that to be the case again like i know the ds is still selling well even though i know the wii has kind of been a flop like the ds is still 
a bit like that still sells well, right? Well, we just got news this yeah. week that they are forecasting a a, a lower fiscal year for 3DS than, yeah. than anticipated. So that may it may be an interesting move for them to say, hey, we're kind of doubling down on making this a handheld system that you can carry anywhere when people are buying fewer 3DSs than they anticipated. It's interesting. It says it's a 13% drop. Yeah. Uh, so um, I don't know. It's an it's an interesting tact for for Nintendo to take. Um, I mean, it could be kind of like the next version, like because what are you going to do past the 3DS, right? Besides, like kind of make new versions of it or like slightly yeah. improve it or something. Like this could be kind of like a, combining the idea of like, okay, we're going to have a console plus this is also going to be our kind of new the new mobile thing, like the new 3DS or something. Well, it's strange to me that on the same week that they announced the new Pokemon Sun and Moon, they're also forecasting lower 3DS sales. It feels like Pokemon would juice those sales, but maybe all the people that already play Pokemon have already bought a 3DS. So I don't know. Yeah, I mean, the 3DS has been out for how long? Yeah, several years now. Yeah, how much more of an audience they're going to be reaching. Although that article, I was a little confused because it said the yen or the strength of the yen. I thought the yen was doing really poorly. That's certainly not my area of expertise, but yeah. <laughs> international uh, monetary markets. Well, I think that's markets. what they mean, though. The strength of the yen is not strong. It's just oh, poorly okay. worded or confusingly oh, okay. worded sentence structure. Yeah, because actually, because one of the guys that we work with lives in Tokyo and we do, um, we co-organize BitSummit. And so we actually do a lot of work with Japanese companies. So I'm always sort mm. of like paying attention to this. Uh, so right now, like when we get money that comes in in USD, everyone's always very excited because the yen's like not been doing super well lately. Uh, but that makes a lot more sense. I think it was just a strangely worded sentence because that's yeah. been bad. It's been bad for, or not bad. That's a wrong way to put it. It's been weak for probably about like a year or something now. I mean, it's been mm-hmm. a while. And with China's currency, like not doing well either. I think all the Asian currency markets are kind of like, meh. So I wonder if that's just a reflection of like economic issues and not so much like a Nintendo specific issue. It seems strange to me that they would uh, not have learned a little bit from the Wii U and, and put out a, a console that sort of just catches up to where everybody currently is and that has been out for a couple of years already um, and not sort of try to outpace everybody. But I guess if you're doing a home console in your hand that is just as powerful, I guess that does feel a little bit more advanced. I don't know what we'll have to see. It's an exciting year to see yeah. what Nintendo will do. So um, much new hardware. Yeah. Uh, I do need to take a second and uh, thank our sponsor, Mac Weldon. I, I really, I really genuinely like Mac Weldon. And I think it's so cool the, the way they wanted to sponsor this show is to say, hey, just guys, just talk about your experience. Order some clothes, order some underwear, order some uh, basics, which is what Mac Weldon sells, and just talk about it. So Christian and I did. I got my, um, I got my second shipment of, uh, of underpants. I got boxers, a bunch of boxers this week. Uh, and they're so comfortable. I'm wearing a pair right now. And I think this is something that people don't spend enough time thinking about. I mean, I certainly don't want to think about underwear all the time. It's kind of boring thing to buy, but it it goes a long way. Uh, I think that your loved ones, uh, when you're, you know, you're intimate with your loved ones, I think they, they recognize good taste and high quality. And Mack Weldon certainly has all that. Uh, Christian, you dug your Mack Weldon stuff, right? Yeah, I said between you and me, my test for underwear is always working out in it. I have now worked out in my in my Mack Weldon trunks. Uh, boxers are so weird. I don't know why people wear boxers. Dude, they, it's they, all boxers <laughs> all the time, baby. No, it's so weird. It's Boxers are weird. It's just like, it doesn't matter. What I'm sure they make good... It, anyway, I worked out <laughs> in the trunks. They passed. Uh, comfort, no chafing. Everything was good. Also, you should wear good underwear. It's the closest thing to your 
privates, man. Like, yeah, that's what that, you care about. Those seem important. Yeah. Yeah. Important. Also, their socks are awesome. I got some socks. And I'm telling you, I think, Kelly, you could probably uh, uh, corroborate this. People notice the details, right? When you have like cool socks on, people notice. People notice when Jeff has good boxers on. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's an important part of fashion is having the right like underwear for it because otherwise like your clothes look weird, you feel weird, like I don't yeah. know. I think it's a I think it's a pretty common mistake. So I don't think there's any harm in having a nice pair of underwear. Agreed. So why don't you get on that train? Check out Mac Weldon. All you got to do is uh, go to MacWeldon.com. M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. We'll give you 20% off. All you got to do is use our promo code DLC at checkout. We'll give you 20% off your order. That's pretty awesome. Even better, they really dig their, uh, their, their clothes and they really believe in their clothes. And they say, if you don't find their clothes comfortable, you send, you can get a full refund and you don't have to send it back. You can keep your underwear, just keep it, and they'll still give you a refund if you are super satisfied. That, that is how much they – it's no questions asked. That's how much they believe in this product. They want you to try it. And all you got to do is go to MacWeldon.com, use that promo code DLC. It'll get you 20% off. Products are uh, antimicrobial, which means something cool. I think that means it eliminates odor. I don't know. Uh, all I'm telling you is I ordered underpants. I ordered socks. Uh, Christian has a hoodie, some uh, some shirts. Um, it, it's it's really high quality stuff. We've tried it ourselves. I think you'll dig it. And we're going to give you 20% off. So uh, check it out. MacWeldon.com slash, or no, excuse me, MacWeldon.com with that promo code DLC. Uh, all right, guys, my story of the week, uh, I am torn. There's a couple of really good ones. Uh, but I think I'm going to go with uh, the fact that the division will not have microtransactions. I think this is a win for all. <laughs> a win for all. Community man- manager for the division uh, tweeted this week that there will be no microtransactions and no pay to win. Evidently, this thing that's been in the beta that people have have noted, uh, this Phoenix credits, people thought, oh, that's just a euphemism for human dollars, <laughs> is not. We don't know what Phoenix credits are actually going to be, but uh, thank you, Ubisoft. Thank you, designers of... The division. Um, I, I'm so pleased that this will, will mean no microtransactions. Christian, do you believe it? I really want to, and I'm optimistic. I hope that this means that it will have macro transactions in the sense that they do awesome post content DLC in the vein of Witcher or something like that. You know, the beta really impressed a lot of people. The world seems pretty fully realized, and for a game that is so multiplayer, not dependent per se, but really leans into that. If you start introducing pay-to-win microtransactions, um, it's a real good way to splinter and fracture your audience. So fingers crossed, The Division delivers on the promise. Kelly, do you have any thoughts on this? Um, Not too much. I mean, I think it's good that they're not going to have microtransactions in it. It's nice to kind of be moving away from that just in general with games. Yeah. This article, it's kind of funny, as like, you know, ye olden days where you just bought a game and played it. I'm definitely a huge fan of that. Um, right. Yeah. So, I mean, and especially the the pay to win thing, I think it's just, it's such a bizarre, such a bizarre strategy in a game. Like it just feels incredibly unfair. So I'm hoping at least they don't have that in it for sure. Yeah. Well, we will find out very soon. March I, 8th is the release. Go ahead. Can I pitch an indie game really quick? Ooh, please and do. someone listening can take this idea, just credit me somewhere. It's called pay to win. <laughs> and you you literally pay to win and it's almost like an ebay bid and you get to see the other person's thing and if you're willing to pay more for that when then you get it 
and then somehow you gamify a little bit more and get a you know good graphics in there. <laughs> you just add a little game in there somewhere, but it's basically an auction. Yeah, you put a you put a game. You just in there pay somewhere. to win, and that's that's how you play. <laughs> I, how much money actually, are you going to pay? I was reading something about it. I think it's a, a game in China or something like that, where I think that is the game where you just give money to the game. Like <laughs> that's it, great. So, yeah, yeah, I didn't read the full article. I should have now that this has like come up, but I'm pretty sure that's what it was. Like you just give money to the people. <laughs> no, Christian, you know the game is called Pay to Sometimes Win. And it's a slot machine. <laughs> it's pay to never win. Pay to, pay to very rarely win. Yeah. <laughs> um, another story I just wanted to mention briefly because I'm excited about it and I was trying to decide whether it was going to be my story of the week. But it's it falls in the rumor category, so I wasn't super sure. But uh, there, someone, again, on NeoGAF has uh, eagle-eyed, <laughs> eagle-eyed poster has noted that um, Remedy has filed trademark for Alan Wake's return, which seems to indicate that they want to make a new Alan Wake game. And I love the Alan Wake games. So I'm very excited about this. Uh, it was actually it wasn't Remedy that did it. It was like a, a shadow corporation that has been <laughs> used by Remedy previously called uh, Network Solutions LLC. But um, right yeah, right. Sounds fake. Uh, <laughs> but Alan Wake it's a return. Oh man, if they I know that they're still hard at work on uh Quantum Break right now, but but uh if if there was a new Alan, full-on Alan Wake game, I would be the happiest boy. But will you so. be disappointed when it stars Catwoman and Penguin? <laughs> yeah. It's a dumb. It's return. Yeah, was, thank you. I, I appreciate good. the fact that my referential comedy falls so flat most of the time in this podcast that you feel the need to explain it. <laughs> <laughs> well, explain in the fairness, um yeah so i guess i'm the only one that's excited about an alan wake game i don't know i want to i feel like we have the technology to finally make the alan wake that we all dreamed of but i said the domain name was registered last june also yeah that means they've been working on it in a while maybe yeah website and a trademark potentially i keep saying this i trust in remedy until they disappoint um and they haven't yet so of course why wouldn't you be excited about a cool game and a cool franchise from a developer that has done good work in the past cool all right guys let's move on we got a lot of good games to talk about so let's get to the playlist kelly um yeah you've played 600 games a day <laughs> What are some what are some games on your playlist right now that you can talk about? Yeah, so well, it's actually kind of funny. So I play like hundreds and hundreds of games for work stuff, and then when it comes to the like, games that I play on my own, I play like five. Like I am <laughs> a very specific gamer type. Like I just only play management sims or like you know these kind of like very specific things. So no, no, that's just you managing the games you're playing. That's not <laughs> a game. <laughs> I know it's really well, like when I tell people that they're like, wait, so you do that for fun and you do that for work? <laughs> like at what point is it a problem? <laughs> that sounds like you have a dream job then. You're, you're I doing know, what you exactly. love. <laughs> I need to make the um, like I, indie mega booth uh, simulation game. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, I have heard very good things about City Skylines and I've been very tempted by it. And I know you've been playing that. Yes. So do you love it as much as I've yes. heard people love it? Yeah, I am a huge SimCity fan. Like I've been playing it since the very first one. I had it on Super Nintendo. I had it on my computer. So it's like I've I've played and loved all the like SimCity, all Sim Ant, Sim Tower, like the whole nonsense. And Even so, the most recent SimCity? Did it let no. you down? So that's what I was going to say is when that was coming out, that was like a huge thing between me and like my friends that play these types of games. And when City Skylines came out, um, Eric, who does our volunteer stuff, he actually bought it for me because I was like, we were both just so, like so sad about the potential <laughs> of the, the last SimCity. 
Um, yeah, and I played it a ton. I mean, there's definitely like, I think the difference is the big major difference is that there's a lot more upfront time in city skylines. Like you spend more time building your like your small town into like a small city as opposed to like in SimCity where I feel like a lot of the most of the management part comes in like once you're kind of a metropolis uh, size city. But I kind of like mm-hmm. it. And there's a lot of things that I think they've improved on, like especially like building mechanics wise is really good. Um, there's ton like this is one of the first games I've played where the Steam Workshop uh, integration is really, really good and very useful. So there's just tons of really good content that's easy, like user-generated content that's easy to get into the game. Mm-hmm. To kind of like fix some of the things like the UI with um, like managing all like the train and bus systems and stuff like that. And I'm definitely, I mean, I've probably put like maybe 30 or 40 hours or something into it recently. And I'm still like, man, there's so much more to explore in it. So. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, so I, I highly, highly recommend it if you like those kinds of games. Again, that's City Skylines. Yes, that's cool. an indie team actually. Oh, really? Yeah, it's a small team um, that made it, so good for them. <laughs> yeah, good in them, for sure. Yeah. And uh, how about uh, Life is Strange? I see that's also on your on your playlist here. Um, again, a game that I've been meaning to get into because people keep talking about how great it is, but uh, you know, there's only so many hours. But are, yeah. are you on the It's Great train? Um, yeah, I actually I put it in there after I read the Alan Wake um, article because it reminded me because it was saying that it's episodic or that it has like kind of story mm-hmm. or um like uh, almost like a tv show or something in it yeah and i don't know i mean i think about it a lot now that i've like finished it I, I finished it maybe like a month or two ago um and so i think about a lot of things that happened in it and there's definitely a lot of like really like awkward uh like dialogue between the characters to the point where partway through like somebody made a joke about something with a tampon machine and i was like this had to have been written by 40 year old guys you yeah know, like, that was like no teenager ever said like this line ever teenage girl kind of like writing stuff um but i think once it gets past that part of it like if you can get past the kind of like cringeworthy dialogue between like teenage girls i guess that is also written by not teenage girls (laughs) the actual story for it starts to get very interesting like um i don't know if you watch anime or not but there's a a madoka magica like Mm -hmm. that the storyline of Madoka Magica reminds me a bit of like the ending for Life is Strange and it's like done in a very cool way like I think the later chapters are good so I'm like I'm glad that I played it and I'm not upset that I put as much time into it but there's definitely things in the beginning where I was a little like should I keep going with this or not Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah I don't know I I played it over the course of a couple days so it's kind of like a sit down and binge play it so I don't feel like it ate up too much of my life (laughs) No, it's very that, bizarre. <laughs> like, no, it's, no, that's a great. Game. I mean, I think that's great. I think that's pe- why people are drawn to, to episodic stuff. It's like I can yeah. sit down, I can, I can play this in short chunks and get something out of it and move on. I think that's that's a benefit of those kinds of games. Yeah, for yeah, sure. for sure. Uh, anything else you wanted to bring up? Um, have you guys played Fallout Four? Not, I'm not familiar. Uh, Fallout. Uh, I'm not. Yeah, I think it's pretty good. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, yeah, one of my top games of last year, and I've put. Many hours into Fallout 4. Yeah? Do you like... I mean, so I have a hard time finishing stories in games. And I especially had a really hard time killing as many, like, raiders as you're supposed to kill. I felt really bad. (laughs) You're, like, going in and, like, massacring, like, hundreds of people because somebody on a farm is, like... They're bothering us. (laughs) (laughs) I'll I'll go commit, like, mass murder for you for a few hours and then come back. No, Um, that's why I was very sympathetic to the... uh... I mean, I don't want to spoil anything, but there's a certain faction in the game that is like, hey, everybody on the surface is kind of a 
a D bag, and I was like, yeah. you know what, you're not wrong. Yeah, <laughs> including me, including me. Yeah, <laughs> like even though you're like kind of doing the right thing, you know, it's yeah. very like I felt bad because I was like, man, they're just doing their thing, like they're just surviving. Right. Yeah, you know, they never came after me or whatever. Um, I, I read an interesting article. I can't remember where it was. I, I'm probably on Polygon. Um, somebody was talking about how really Fallout, 4, the failure of Fallout Four is that it creates such a vibrant, interesting world. And everything leads to killing, like every, yeah. literally everything you can do just is only there to, to, to provide a shootout. Yeah. And instead of the way Fallout games have been in the past, which is, you know, it, it, there's myriad ways to deal with that. There are, you know, there are options to sort of talk and explore. And you're, you are talking a lot in the game, but n- never, never is that the resolution to a situation. <laughs> Yeah, I had tried. There were a couple of things where I tried. And this is actually, I guess, where Life is Strange is kind of interesting, where there are a couple of times where I tried to talk down killing someone and went back to a save and tried it like three or four times to see if there was a different way that I could have solved yeah. the problem without shooting them. And like I hadn't figured out really any of them. Uh, so right. the only way actually I kind of fixed it for myself is um, to do like a console cheat where I have this um, mini nuke launcher, which is like mm-hmm. comedically insane. Like it just makes the, it makes the killing part funny because it just is so nonsense. Like you just shoot, literally are shooting a nuclear bomb at someone's like face and then it just goes <laughs> off in this huge explosion and all the NPCs are still doing like, oh, did you hear that? It's like, oh, did you hear the <laughs> nuclear explosion <laughs> like three feet away from you? Um, and it makes going through all that stuff like super fast. So once I did that and at least kind of like made it funny for myself, it made it a little more reasonable, but yeah. it is kind of disappointing in a lot of games. Like there's so especially when we're playing through games and I'm playing a couple hundred in a row, like at some points I'm just like, I'm just really tired of shooting things. Like I just yeah. don't want to shoot things anymore. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the story that I, I may have told this before on the show, but there's a side quest early on in the game in one of the, in the sort of main city where uh, this guy is kind of a, uh, doesn't have a lot of confidence and he wants to ask a girl out and the, the bartender guy? says, well, what? Well, yeah. The bartender yeah. says, well, all you got to do is stage a fight and then you get into a fight and you kind of help him win. And then he looks good in front of the girl and she'll think he's a big hero and it'll be awesome. And I'm like, okay, I'll do that. That sounds great. So I, you know, I, I, I um, unequip all of my weapons and I'm just bare fisted and I kind of provoke that guy and I get into a fight and I punch him once, once in the face. And then my companion shoots him with a laser and kills him dead. <laughs> and I was like, what? AI companion, why would you do that? I, he's like, well, you know, that's what that's the only way the game knows how to deal with problems is to shoot them dead. And it's like, oh, yeah. okay. That kind of shows me that that was the really the only solution was to murder everyone. Yeah. It's a shame. It's a shame. It, it, it with such an interesting vibrant world that you've created to make the it's so binary the the choices. Yeah. I, I you know, I don't know. But I love yeah. the game still, so yeah, I mean, I, I like Oblivion and Skyrim and all that stuff, too, but they are very much like I and all the Bethesda games are kind of like that, where I just get partway into the story and it, it turns into that kind of stuff. And I just give up and I start like collecting flowers or just wandering around and like talking to people. And I never figure out what actually happens in the game. Right. At the end, like the storyline, because at some point, like the the kind of like the interactions that you have to go through in the game outweigh how much I care about what happens in the story, which mm-hmm. is unfortunate because it's like this whole crazy world is built around it. And then at some point you're just like, yeah. Eh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, Christian, how about you? You got some stuff on your playlist? Speaking of murdering people, um, <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I red boxed the uh, PS4 re-release of Deadpool, which was a 360 PS3 game made by High Moon Studios for Activision. And I would say High Moon in, I mean this with the utmost respect. So if any of these developers are listening, please don't take this the wrong way. But I feel like High Moon and Platinum now are one of the best studios out there for creating these what seem clearly Activision budget, you know, licensed IP, get this game out titles. Um, The High Moon did Transformers before and now Platinum did the most recent one. And Deadpool, I mean, this is no one's game of the year. Uh, It was no one's game of the year last (laughs) gen. The the re-release is, it's fine. Uh, It's not you know, the Uncharted collection level of polish of what uh, can be done for a re-release of games. That being said, I did a, there's an hour of it on my Twitch channel, which is just Christian Spicer, um, just kind of the first level. And I I was very nostalgic for this game. Like this game came out at the wrong time originally, I think, when it came out on the PS3 and Xbox 360. And it's an action shooter. The combat's not as good as a platinum game. but The, the, humor... the wrong time being when no one had heard of Deadpool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the humor's uh, largely there. It, it plays to Deadpool's strengths, which I would say is 30% um, bad, horrible jokes, but 70% correct self-awareness. And um, this, I felt nostalgic for, I felt like a kid, a 90s kid. How would I react uh, to this game comes out day and date with the movie and you see the movie and then you go home and you play the game and it's not the best game you're playing that year, but you're having fun spending more time in the world with this character that you now adore and you want to spend time with. And at a $15, $20 price point now, or like a red box rental, if you are a new fan of Deadpool, I highly recommend the game for, for that, right? It, it is that you're getting your friends over for a sleepover. You're going to play this game. You're going to laugh at the real jokes and roll your eyes at the dumb jokes and and literally just murder everyone with Deadpool. Um, I don't know. Have, you, have either of you played it? Did you check out either version, Jeff? You're a comic no, guy. I am. I, I was one of the few people that knew who Deadpool was back then. But uh, no, I never played it. I do, never played do you remember it. when Deadpool was just a merc and not a merc with a mouth? Like, <laughs> Yeah. OG yeah. Deadpool. Uh, yeah, check it Rob out. Rob Liefeld, D- Deadpool. Yeah. Yeah, he was just a, a really cool ninja that killed people. It's yeah. uh, It's interesting. And I think also interesting from that perspective of not every game needs to be uh, 10 out of 10. People used to lament, you know, back in the Week and Confirm days about, you know, where is this uh, B-tier game or whatever. And they're still out there, just maybe a little harder to find. But Activision, I think, often does a lot wrong. <laughs> but they've entrusted some of these uh, IP uh, franchises to studios that are very capable. I'm excited for the Platinum Games developed. Ninja Turtles game is their next next take on that. And High Moon uh, always made... I think very competent and fun games. And then I was on the road. I was in San Diego at the La Jolla comedy store this past weekend with Sam Tripoli. Um, and uh, hello to, uh, had a couple, two listeners over the shows there that came by and said, hi, that was cool. But I uh, have spent more time on borderlands two on the Vita. And this also is in the same uh, vein as um, Deadpool, right? Where like, it's not the best version of the game. It's a, a kind of lousy version of the game, but I bought it for $4 on a PSN flash sale. So a tip of the hat to PSN for going after that Steam sale market kind of approach. 
And it works perfectly well for when I came home from a show, wasn't tired, but should be tired. So I played an hour of going and collecting stuff and shooting stuff and I'm done, right? Like I would never tell someone, you haven't played Borderlands? Get it for the Vita. (laughs) Right. But as a way to mindlessly entertain yourself and you're burned out on Twitter and Facebook, uh, gaming doesn't need to be uh, the perfect experience every time. And I think find room in your heart for B tier games. Are you, are you interested at all in uh far cry, uh, uh, caveman edition? Are you going to play it? Are you going to, cause I did not play it. I, I made a point not to play it this week. Um, but are you interested? I am interested. If someone wants to send me a review copy, I am not $60 <laughs> of my own money interested, which is how yeah. I play. I play most of my games. Far Cry 4 was one of my favorite games. Uh, you know, when it came out, I think it's beautiful, but uh, well, Primal. Primal looks pretty good, but um, I did not get a chance to play it. I, I played some indie games, uh, not in honor of our guest, but it works out pretty well, Synergy. Um, and I am in love with them. Uh, super hot. Super hot. Yeah, that's super up for multiple hot. IGF awards, actually. I think uh, it's a and, grand prize also. And it deserves it. I mean, this is... This, I think, epitomizes what a fresh idea can do to a well-worn genre. I mean, if you talk about first-person shooters, they've been around for so long, and you feel like everybody has done everything that you can do with first-person shooters at this point until Superhot comes along and goes, oh, everything you know about this can be turned on its head and made incredible. Uh, and the, the idea behind Superhot is very simple. It's a first-person shooter where... Time only progresses forward when you move. So if you don't touch any buttons, you can just sit there and wait as long as you want and and watch the enemies kind of running at you uh, and shooting at you. But as soon as you move or rotate your reticle or walk or try to shoot, then time progresses and those bullets come zinging toward your face and the enemies are running around the environment and attacking you. But what it effectively does is it transforms a Twitch game into a, a, a strategic game. It really is more like a, a turn-based game because you have to plan your movements. And what ends up happening is this amazing experience where you feel like you are choreographing a Jackie Chan fight scene. <laughs> like the most intricate, amazing series of moves. Like you'll you'll shoot your gun at a guy and run out of bullets and then throw your gun and it'll knock him in the face, making him shoot, you know, ma- making him lose his gun. Like it comes out of his hand because he's disoriented, which then you grab out of the air and use that to turn and shoot another guy who drops a bat that you then pick up and throw it. It's like, it is, it, it feels like finally being that awesome action star that I always fantasized about like a Jackie Chan where he's like using everything in an environment and everything's a dance and it feels super perfect and choreographed, but you're just coming up with it on the fly. (laughs) It's amazing. I mean, it's a very short game. Yeah. Uh, Some new modes open up at the end. um, Let you play, you know, keep playing it, which is really cool, but it's wrapped in this really fun aesthetic of sort of like this old DOS like uh, it's almost like um, um, uh, what's the game? What's the TV show that's been on um, the hacker TV show? Uh, Mr. Robot, Mr. Robot. I can never remember the name of it. <laughs> um, 
it's kind of like that. It's like this cool like hacker thing. And it reminds me of the old days when I was, you know, when I was a kid and getting like, you know, you get on the a BBS and you're talking to only one person and it's all DOS based. It's really, really cool. So you've had experience with this one, Kelly? Uh, well, like I said, I mean, it came up for multiple IGF awards and it's something that's actually been in development for a pretty long time. But I think some of the development team changed partway through and then it Didn't kind of it start- into what it is now. I, th- I think it started as one of those like um, those jam sessions. Like it, they came up with it over a couple of hours in a jam session and then were like, hey, this is a really cool idea. And then it, it became a, a whole game. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it started off as like a game jam thing. And like I said, I, I know some of the original team had like changed, but it had been, it had been in development for a while. And this is kind of like what I was saying is that sometimes indie games take a lot longer than you think. And looking back at it, you're like, oh, if only I had known exactly where it was going to end up. You know, I yeah. like, did it this way where I definitely think that this was like an organic kind of like um like movement where there's lots of play testing and lots of like feedback to it and then it eventually became what it is now but uh, definitely a lot of the judge and jury discussions and stuff around this were kind of like how you were saying where this is something where it's a genre that like feels like there wasn't anything new that could happen to it and then mm-hmm. you kind of take this like this seemingly simple idea and execute it very well and turn it into something that nobody's really seen before and i think that's why it resonated really well with everyone who's looking at it because it was something that felt so different in a genre that felt very kind of like old. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I couldn't be more excited about it. I think, and it, as you said, the execution is everything to it. It, it feels very satisfying. Like the enemy shatter, they're sort of these polygonal, uh, just red entities that are always trying to get you. And, and, and that's simplicity, that sort of white environment and the very different environments that you're in throughout the story, uh, it just feels like you're choreographing these cool things, but they're very satisfying when the guys shatter and you've done yeah. something super cool. You feel cool. Which and, is the and then it says, it says cool. super hot, <laughs> super hot. Uh, anyway, so I'm a huge fan of super hot. You guys should definitely check that out if you haven't already. Uh, the other indie game that I played uh, this week was the fire and the flood or excuse yeah. me, the flame in the flood. Uh, I always say that wrong too. The flame in the flood uh, and this is um, a genre that I'm sure you're seeing a lot of because we're seeing a lot of them too, um, which is very popular in the indie scene, which is sort of the survival games, um, sort of roguelikes, but with an added element of being uh, woefully underprepared and having yeah. all kinds of different catastrophes that you have to deal with. Uh, this one is a, you're a little girl and you have a, a sort of a scrawny little dog with you. And you're in this post-apocalyptic flooded world. All you've got is a raft that's crafted out of like the trunk of a car and, and some uh, very few scraps of, of supplies when you start out. And you have to scavenge things and craft things and survive as long as you can got, getting on your, your little raft and going down the rapids of a, of a flooded city and stopping in certain areas and trying to scavenge what you can but not – get killed by the elements, you know, temperature you have to deal with and hunger and, and rain and cold and sadness. And, and then there's also little creatures that are as desperate as you are to survive and that will attack you and you'll get wounded and you die a lot in this game. Uh, (laughs) But it is a really cool, I think it's my favorite of these kind of things that we're seeing a lot more of lately. Um, I was really enamored with this. Have you, have you played the flame and the flood? Uh, well, I played bits and pieces of it for um, the Mega Booth submissions before, yeah. and this is actually a genre of game. Have you played The Long Dark, or have you heard of that? I have heard of it, but I have not played it. 
very so that I I really really enjoy that. We got that um, like a year or so ago when it was like very early on, and every once in a while I play it when it's been updated. And that's a genre of game I didn't realize I enjoyed so much mm-hmm. <laughs> until I played that game because it's very much it's all management stuff, right? Like, but then you also have the survivalist part of it. Um, so this is like a genre that I'm really excited about exploring more. And there's this, and then Firewatch that just came out. That's like yeah. not totally survival, but it, you know, kind of like in that same genre, which is a or in the same like area, I guess, of that genre. Mm-hmm. And I think that like I love the aesthetic style of Flame in the Flood. Like it just looks super cool. Like it's stylized, you know, very like, much so. Yeah, realistic and stuff. And um, yeah, I'm I'm super excited to play. This is one of those like when I have more time at the end of the year in my like actual backlog of games. This is this is high on my list because of my experience with the Long Dark. Yeah, no, I, I highly recommend it. I I've, I've been very impressed with the flame, the fire. Excuse me, the Flame in the Flood. It as you said, the aesthetics are really, really evocative. It's kind of this yeah. cartoony, everything is lithe and it just, it just oozes a sort of desperation in the world. Like you, there's predators that are going to attack you, but you kind of feel sorry for them too. And, mm-hmm. and then when you finally encounter human beings, they're all sort of odd and, and interesting. And, and the, it doesn't, it's, it's, it's rough. It's a very difficult game, but it, it doesn't feel as frustrating as some of those games can feel for me, because I, I do feel like I'm, uh, I'm getting by and I'm, and the sort of, when you die, you can, you can pick your dog, like grab some stuff from your body and, and the things that you had the dog carry for you are preserved. So it's a little more forgiving that way. And, and yeah. it's, it's really good, really good. That's awesome. Did you finish it? Or I, I guess maybe not. Well, no, it, there's like, a campaign. I did not finish that. And there's an endless mode. I was playing some of the endless mode as well. Um, I, you know, it, you, <laughs> you get the campaign is good because it has checkpoints. Um, so I did not finish the game, but uh, I got pretty far down the river and you get like new things start happening. Like you see a, a more of developed city. You start out in a very rural area that evidently, uh, you know, the remnants of, of sort of the more, uh, farmland like or something maybe that was what's just that like, i thought it started off in a summer camp or something similar to that maybe that was just the demo that i was playing yeah i, I well you start out yeah i started out at a summer camp and and then you you quickly leave that and then you and yeah. then you like can land at churches and and little like bait shops and stuff and then eventually you get you'll see like bits of highway and you you kind of getting further into the yeah. city and it's it's really cool really really cool awesome yeah, I'm glad that you enjoyed it. It's definitely like I have a handful of games when I play them for testing. Like I play for like a few minutes and I'm like, okay, I know I really like this and I actually want to play the game. And then I'll just stop and kind of like set it aside for me to like play it for reals one day yeah. instead of just like while I'm testing. And this is this is definitely one of them. Uh, 12 Minutes was another one that was kind of like that for me. A mini Metro. Oh, I don't know that one. Ooh, mini Metro is fun. That's like your um, it's a simulator game, <laughs> but you're building like a subway system and it uh. looks kind of like a... Um, like a subway map that you would see on like the trains in New York or something. That's actually, that's up for some IGF stuff this year too, which is awesome. Very um, cool. Yeah. I think they were like uh, honorable mentions last year and then made it into some finalists uh, this year. But that one, that, that one is like one of those, we our threads on it when we're all playing. It was like, please send help. I can't stop playing. <laughs> wow. It's called mini Metro. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, I gotta, I gotta keep my eye out for that. I dig those kinds yeah. of games too. Um, uh, let me. We have a couple of emails I want to share uh, in this section as well that I'm excited for. But I do need to thank our second sponsor, which is Squarespace. Of course, if you guys listen to the show, you've heard me talk about Squarespace before. That's because I've been using Squarespace for years. Uh, JeffCanada.com is on Squarespace. I designed it there. Uh, and I'm not a designer by any stretch of the imagination. But that's what's so cool about Squarespace is it makes it easy. You don't have to have any HTML 
experience or coding knowledge. You can make something that looks unique and beautiful. And really any reason that you might be online, Squarespace has your back. If you need to create a store, they have a drag and drop little widget that lets you add uh, commerce onto your store that lets you sell things. It has a whole uh, way to handle credit card transactions. It's so easy. If you have, if you want to make a, a website or an online portfolio, Squarespace makes beautiful things and it makes it very, very easy. It's all what you see is what you get. It's all drag and drop. It's all intuitive and easy to use. It's awesome. Plus you get a free domain if you sign up for a year. The sites look professionally designed even if you have no design experience at all. Check it out. The coolest thing about Squarespace is They'll let you design your entire site using their tools before you have to even put a credit card in. They're not going to take your credit card information until you know that you want to pay for the service. And then if you do, we're going to give you 10% off your first purchase and it shows support for our show. All you got to do is go to squarespace.com slash DLC, squarespace.com and then slash DLC, and then put in the promo code Jeff sent me when you check out J-E-F-F-S-E-N-T-M-E. Jeff sent me and you'll get 10% off your order. It's really cool. I'm a fan of their service. I really, really do think anybody that asks me, oh, yeah, how do I make a, we- a website? I go, just go to Squarespace. It's so simple. It's just, it works so well. So squarespace.com slash DLC and that promo code Jeff sent me. Um, last week we had uh, Jason sent in an email that we, Christian, you and I failed to s- sufficiently answer <laughs> as we so often do. <laughs> Um, you know, we, he was asking about sort of being addicted to getting achievements. Luckily, another listener, uh, Jim Tullett sent this email in, uh, he had the same problem and here's how he dealt with it. Uh, I think this will be useful. He says, um, he has a series of, of steps, seven steps to claim victory over your completionist problem. Step one, turn off achievement notifications. Do not look at a trophy list. Forget about them. They do not exist. Step two, make two lists, games I want to beat and games I finished. Step three, determine in advance when you will have finished a game. Usually hitting the end credits is a good marker, but for games that don't have a concrete ending, you will need to decide in advance what you consider to be completion for a game. Step four, after you've finished the game, cross it off your want to beat list and add it to your games I finished list. This is the only achievement you need. Good work. You achieved it. Step five, get rid of the game, sell it, put it in a box, delete it from your system. When you're done with the game, now it's time to move on to the next one. Step six, don't feel obligated to play every game you start. If a game isn't fun, cross it off your want to beat list, get rid of it, start the next game on your list. Step seven, celebrate your accomplishments. At the end of the year, share your games I finished list with your gaming buddies. Ask what games they finished, celebrate their wins, and share recommendations with each other. By following these simple seven steps, I feel empowered to play more games without getting bogged down in achievement hunting. Hopefully this advice will help others too. I thought that was great. Good job, Jim. What do you guys that think? That was a very that was a very awesome concrete list. I love yeah. that kind of stuff. <laughs> that was good. We failed entirely to uh, have any kind of. We were like, oh, it doesn't really bother me. <laughs> so, yeah, we're like, oh, whatever, not my problem. <laughs> yeah, I think I actually turning don't off. Have, oh, sorry, oh, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. Um, I was going to say I don't have the like completionist thing with the achievements, but I do have a collect and carry every single thing that I can find in a room. Oh, problem. Yeah. Oh, it's really really bad. I've, and I've actually had to do some of this stuff where like I walk into a room and I'm like. 
don't look into the barrel. Don't look into the barrel. <laughs> you have to walk out of it at some point. So I, I can see, like, like, I think some of this, like, can appeal to that same well, problem. Well, if you do play The Flame and the Flood, you're going to be very frustrated. Yeah, because that yeah. a, She has a very small backpack. Yes. Yeah, that, that actually kind of helps a little bit for me because I can't cheat on games <laughs> like that. Where, like, I do it in Fallout where I'm like, I can carry 40,000 pounds. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I put all my points in strength just so I can carry more junk around. Yeah, I need 810 cans now. <laughs> Um, obviously you can send us emails for the show by using our, uh, our Gmail, which is dlcfeedback at gmail.com. We love getting feedback like, uh, Jim's email. I got another one for you. Uh, this is an email sent to us from John E. Uh, I think this is fascinating. We were talking about game design last week and how games, uh, teach you their mechanics. Uh, so John writes, uh, hello guys. Longtime listener here, and this week's conversation about how game designers teach you the mechanics and rules of games is one of the primary reasons I love video games. I'm a product designer, mobile UI design, and one of the things that is crucial when designing a new feature is how you approach educating a user to use whatever it is that you've designed. A lot of people claim that all user interface design should be obvious. I'm mangling this. Uh, a lot of people claim that all user interface design should be obvious enough that it's just intuitive for someone to just get it. But I think there are a lot more complex things at play here. Past experiences, affordances, an obvious past path to success, providing personal value to the task at hand so the user is encouraged enough to come back and do it again, etc. Games have a very similar problem as you discussed. How do you teach someone about your game while keeping them engaged enough to learn to love it and later come back? And he gave us an, a really cool video about Super Mario Brothers Level 1-1. He says that's the best example of user onboarding ever. Level 1-1 game uh, design from Super Mario Brothers is really important to more than just game design. But this is a shining example of how onboarding in product design should be too. He said it was a great topic and we would love to get more things like this in the show. Uh, I, uh, I will put this uh, link in the show notes so you can watch this video. Very, very cool. Um, I think somebody, Kelly, like you, who plays so many games and sees so many sort of first or early designers uh, trying this, I'm sure you must have a lot of experience in just sort of kind of learning the mechanics of what you're playing and, and how that's done well or not so well. Yeah, I think that's one of the like, probably one of the more difficult things to kind of parse out between whether a game is ever going to sort of figure it out or not, because I'm almost kind of expecting most of the games that we play by that point, the tutorial levels or the instructions are normally kind of like come in like midway to like end of the game, mm -hmm. I guess, in some sense, depending on on how like, you know, there's puzzle games that you kind of solve by like playing with the environment and you never have a formal tutorial or whatever. Um but a lot of the stuff when we are playing a game is like they really need to see players actually interact with the game because there's a lot of this like feeling like you're playing it wrong. And it's like, no, you're not you're not teaching them how to play it correctly. Right. You know? And seeing more and more people doing that, like we have um, there's definitely been a trend where we're getting this kind of like the intuitive where this guy is saying, like, you just get it. And this very minimalistic tutorial design approach, which is actually super complicated to do. Like it's very, very difficult to make a tutorial that people don't realize is a tutorial mm -hmm. or to make a level where you're learning something where you don't realize that you're learning it. And when it's wrong or when it's done wrong, it's just incredibly frustrating because you're like, I would have zero idea how to figure out how to do this. Like, you know, there's 20 keyboard commands and you get zero 
information about what that is. And like, I'm not going to just mash my keyboard to like figure out what's happening at the beginning of the game. Yeah. Um, and that kind of stuff, it's like, it's one of those things where if you do it right, nobody knows that you've done it. And that's super complicated and very like interesting part, I think, of game design. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, we were talking about this last week and, you know, one of the games that I was uh, playing last week was the Black Desert Online, which is this massively multiplayer online game. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it was so obtuse. I mean, I, I think the the trend for a lot of these games, um, maybe thanks to the Dark Souls phenomenon, is that we just sort of allow people or encourage people to just go online and search for it themselves instead of the game doing yeah. any of the work and, and communicating it. And that game, it, it, there were so many systems that just, they just failed completely to explain. Uh, and, and, and in fact, there's one, uh, one mechanic that I baffled me. And from a, from a conceptual standpoint, you kind of make, it makes a little sense. The idea is that because it's this massively multiplayer online world, you're encountering new enemies all the time and you're going into these new, new parts of the world. And the first time you fight something, you don't know anything about it. So it's, it's hit point uh, bar. It's health bar doesn't change when you attack it because you don't know how many hit points this thing has because you've never encountered it before, but it makes for an incredibly frustrating experience because you have to kill something one time in order to understand how, what it takes to kill it. So they even take that to bosses. And so you're fighting this incredibly powerful thing. It feels like when you smack it, nothing's happening. You don't know how close you are to victory. If you need to pop a health potion and just hit it a few more times, or if you're just completely out overpowered, such a strange thing and such a small thing, but it feels like, Oh, well, that's a kind of a cool idea to be like, Oh, you don't know the information. You have to gather the information about it first. But in in practice, it's entirely frustrating. Yeah, yeah. And that that's what I was saying, like, kind of when we do the GDC, GDC showcase is for a lot of players, like, they'll just think it's frustrating. And you're able to articulate why it's frustrating because you play enough games and you talk about this kind of stuff, you know, in, like, in depth to be able to say, like, that was why it was frustrating. But an average player is just going to pick it up and just put the controller back down and just be like, this is too hard, or I don't yeah. like it, or I don't get right. it. Or, like... Somebody who has experience in game design can say, like, you need to give some sort of feedback to the player for this, 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 and this. Um, Thinking about this, I was actually at a friend's house recently, and he had, like, an original copy of, I think it was, like, Final Fantasy or something, the the one for, um, uh, maybe it was Super Nintendo or Nintendo. Anyways, it had the, like, the actual player manual with it. Right. And I was looking through it, and I used to love those. Like, I mean, I was a got very good grades in school type of kid, so, you know, I would read through the whole manual before I would play a game. Yeah. That, like, I mean, it was a complicated manual, like, to explain Final Fantasy to somebody who's, like, never played Final Fantasy before. <laughs> right. It's, like, actually yeah. pretty, like, complicated, right? It's, like, this, like, 20-page, like, little manual thing. And then on top of it, you also still have, like, tutorial stuff that happens in-game. And now you have things, like, I guess that's kind of replaced by the online guide. But that's, like, a whole part of game design, I guess, or the game experience that just kind of isn't a thing. Yeah. Anymore. I, I, mean, that, I miss that. Me too. That's what you used to do, uh, you know, in yeah. the back seat on the way home as, as your mom yeah. stopped at cost plus <laughs> and buy some wicker baskets, you know, like you, you, that's all you could do is just read the manual and get excited. Yeah. And then like when you're playing it in game and then you can go back and reference it and there's a lot of games like city skylines, like I'll pull up uh, like, you know, an online guide or something like that and read through things, learn how to do it. And it does have a really good tutorial, but there's still, there's still like intricate or nuanced stuff that you want to learn a little bit later about it. And I wonder like how much maybe some modern games could kind of benefit from like 
having that available with it from the start instead of making you go through a tutorial that is like the equivalent of a 30 page manual, which you might not need all at once or care about or starts to become sort of like, I don't really want, you know, I'm tired of getting this and getting a trophy for every time I like jump on something or touch something or talk to someone <laughs> when you could yeah. just like read it in a little pamphlet and be like, OK, that's how I talk. That's how I jump. Like now I'm done. I wonder how much of that is influenced by the games never being finished, even, you know, not games as services mm-hmm. type games. But like, let's say Destiny came with this really awesome instruction book and you read it and digest it and then play the game and then come back a month later and you're like, whoop, that's wrong. <laughs> everything I just read is wrong. <laughs> yeah. Or like Street Fighter Five, they tell you yeah. how to do everything and like whatever. And then they rebalance the game and you throw it away. And I think part of it was, you know, practicality and cost and the idea of, oh, we'll just put it online. And for a time, you did see really good instruction manuals online for games like made by the publisher or developer. And now yeah. that's kind of gotten lazy and it's like, yeah, here's the game. Um, but it, it's, it's a challenge, I think, to create a thing because when you bought Legend of Zelda back in the day, the dungeons were the dungeons and that's how the game played. And now part of the fun sometimes is that things update and change and become better and more competent as you play them. So what is that thing that you take home? Uh, we're figuring it out, but it's definitely games are at this. We're still at a crossroads of like the Internet's cool. How do we <laughs> how do we make yeah. it only cool and not annoying? Right. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm not sure like what side of the fence I am on that, whether like when Skyrim first came out, that was one of the first games that I think I downloaded Steam for. But I physically went to a Best Buy and bought the CD like on purpose because I was like, I don't want to have a thing to play it. Like, I just want to own the game. I want to put it on my computer. I don't want to update it. I don't want to do anything. And that's like not the way that games work anymore. And there's some stuff where I, I don't play that for like six or six months or a year, like The Sims, I play a lot, but I'll play it once every six or eight months or something. And it takes me two hours to get it playing for the first time. I have to yeah. I have to check into expansions. I have to look into this. And then it's like, by the time that I've got the whole game updated and ready to go again, like, or Skyrim, like a bunch of my mods go out of date, you know, because I got them a year and a half ago or something like that. And then I go and play it. And it's like, by the time that I'm done with it, I'm like, do I even want to play this anymore? Like I just spent two hours like wanting to have fun instead of actually having fun. But I guess it's better than having the game be totally broken when you're like halfway through it and you're like, well, now I'm just stuck on like, you know, off in the atmosphere somewhere <laughs> yeah. because the physics just threw me off a cliff. Yeah. Um, let's, uh, that, that was awesome. Let's, uh, let's move on and carve out a little bit of tabletop time. Right now, right now. Uh, Kelly, you are a uh, board gamer as well as, as as I understand, but uh, the the board game or tabletop experience that you want to talk about is very unique. I'll put it that way. Well, so this is the question: is board games that I played recently? So I think I'd said in in my email. I mean, I've, I I played Netrunner. I like Agricola. I played Dominion a bunch. Like board games are one of those things I like go on binges with them and play a handful of them. But the re- the most recent board game that I played. I'm making air quotes. You can't see it. (laughs) It's a a game called mind flex, which is just like, I'm not even really sure how to describe this. It's you. So first off you put a thing on your head, like a a headband and you clip this, like these sensors to your ears. The game looks like it's from like 1995. I'm not sure how old it actually is, but, and you, so the idea is that you have like this maze that you make with these like fans and these little like styrofoam balls. And you're supposed to use the power of your mind to make the fans get stronger or weaker to like push the ball through this like maze of things it is like uh, it takes like 10d batteries you know like it's 
<laughs> that's all this weird like sound effects and stuff like that. And I was saying before we got on, like I'm 99% sure that it doesn't actually read your mind. I think that it just turns the fans on and off at like random intervals. So then you think like, <laughs> oh, maybe maybe my mind was clear, you know, and that's why the the fan got a little less, or maybe I was concentrating really hard. Um, why such a skeptic? Why isn't it working? Well, okay, so there are actually, we had a game that was in our GDC showcase, I think it was last year called Throw Trucks With Your Mind, that actually does use this kind of technology. And there's another game that we had, um, I think it's called Data Garden, where you like put these sensors on a plant, and then you like play the plant music or something. And it like, I don't know, it does all this weird stuff. And it's like this thing where you're like, mentally communing with a plant or something. But it's just like, it's reading, like the moisture changes or electro changes on like the surface of the the leaves and the throw trucks with your mind thing like you can actually sense like certain something or other with like if you have a thing strapped on your head the thing so is what does is this, this one do to not instill confidence <laughs> <laughs> i think it's just the fact that it's like just came in a weird box and i'm pretty sure it's old and like this equipment is pretty expensive and i don't think that this i mean i'm assuming this game is like a 15 dollars game like it's someone's yard sale or something like that so i'm just <laughs> assuming it doesn't actually have the real technology to like read your mind <laughs> move is it, and down. other than the gimmick of moving it with your mind is it fun in any way um i think it, the anticipation of playing the game was more fun than the actual game <laughs> the actual, even even if like so we got the whole sensor thing working so even with that kind of like going like just physically getting the ball through these like little things it's like you set up like mousetrap style stuff you know so it's like a tube that the ball has to go through or something like that like even even with like kind of cheating on it, it's still like physically difficult to get the ball to like move around the thing. So it was one of those like, you know, a day and a half of anticipation and then like a minute and a half of playing the game and then being like, okay, I'm over it. <laughs> but good Mind flex. <laughs> yeah. Did you yeah. order this game from the back of a Boy Scouts catalog that also came <laughs> with uh, no, x-ray vision no. glasses? Yeah, it was like found in a closet. It was like one of these things where it was just like, well, what is this? You know? <laughs> so... I saw you wrote this down, and so I, I had to Google it. And I, I'm noticing that you you have to put little sensors on your earlobes. Yeah, yeah. So you like you look ridiculous, and there's like the manual for it is super funny. Like I took a bunch of pictures and sent them to my friend while I was playing this because it's just like diagrams of what you look like when you like have it on. I don't know what the ear thing does. Actually, now that I'm looking at a picture, it looks like there's one that's a two player Mindflex dual game. I guess you fight. Oh, the other. whose mind is stronger? <laughs> the only one guy yeah. has the ear sensors, though. Well, you don't want to have everybody have ear sensors. I feel like this game is a practical joke I, game. I pulled up the Wikipedia. Yeah. <laughs> it Does says it say mind it's real? Flex, mind flex is a toy by Mattel, which apparently uses brainwaves. Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Even and they're throwing be. shade. <laughs> We don't know how this thing works. Scientists uh, have questioned whether the toy actually measure brainwaves or just randomly moves the ball. <laughs> yeah, I think it's that randomly. Well, here's a picture. I'm looking. Uh, what year did it say the game came out? Because it's saying the game was ninety nine dollars or something. Or there's a picture that can't be right. released. Fall there's of no two thousand nine. Two thousand nine. I guess that is kind of a long time ago, right? What a scam. <laughs> I mean, I think it's a scam, right? You all, I mean, like I said, I really don't think it's actually reading your mind. There's a couple of pictures of kids that look very excited about it. I mean, if I was like 10 and playing this game, that might be like kind of cool. But it's also like technically frustrating. Like I said, even if you're kind of cheating, it's hard to like hard to get it to work right. Oh, it looks like there's a Star Wars game that's kind of the same. 
mom, dad, yeah, yeah, you, you read my mind wrong. I did not want this piece of junk toy. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Oh my goodness. Mind flex. Yeah. Uh, if anybody has, has, has played mind flex, I want you to write into DLC feedback at gmail.com. That'd be awesome. Yeah. I, um, I, I'm also very curious if anybody responds to you, please let me know. <laughs> I will. Absolutely. Um, so I, I had some friends over the other night and, uh, they had, they're not board gamers. And I was looking through my collection as to, as to what to bring out. And, uh, I settled on a game. I don't think I've ever talked about on the show, but, uh, is I think a really good go-to, uh, inexpensive small box game that I think people might be into. It's called Ink and Gold. Uh, it's a classic, uh, in my opinion, and it's, it works really well because it plays fast. It's very simple and it's easy to explain to people. Uh, but it still has really juicy, fun uh, choices to be made. It's a push your luck game, kind of a classic push your luck game because there's not really much going on other than the luck pushing. Basically, the idea is you are a group of intrepid adventurers along the lines of Indiana Jones, and you are delving into temples to get the the delicious uh, turquoise and obsidian and gold that is inside. And also, there might be some some idols, some very, uh, very expensive uh, trinkets that you can retrieve. And you're going deeper and deeper into this underground temple. Uh, and uh, so you're, you're laying down cards that reveal what you find along the path. Uh, so if you reveal a treasure card of which half the deck is composed, you will find uh, a, a variety of treasures. And those treasures get divvied up among all the people that are in the game. Uh, so an equal number, get, you know, it's all shared equally. Everybody's happy. Uh, and as you keep going, more treasures and more treasures and more treasures, and you get you this little pile of treasures that you've got. The trick is you only get to keep those treasures if you leave the temple with them. And along that path, along with treasures, there may also be hazards like falling rocks or fire or crazy zombie creatures or spiders or snakes, you know, stuff that uh, Indiana Jones might run into <laughs> as well. So if one of those things comes out, no problem. You can still keep going deeper into the temple. But if two of the same type of hazard comes out, you get terrified, you drop all of your treasure, and you run out of the thing, losing everything that you had, uh, the entire group, that is. So after every turn, after every new card comes down along that path, you get a decision to either stay in the, the temple and keep going or to leave with what you've got there. And if there are little trinkets that have been found along the path, there's a little twist. So everybody flips over a card simultaneously saying whether or not they're staying or they're going farther into the dungeon. But uh, if there are trinkets along the path, they are worth a lot. But if more than one person leaves and a trinket is on the path, neither of them gets it or none of them gets it. But if one person leaves and everybody else stays, they do get the trinket. So there's a little bit of mind games of who's going to leave and who's going to stay. And if somebody leaves too soon and then a bunch of new treasures come out, only the people that have stayed get those. It's fun. It's push your luck. See how long you can stay and get more treasures until the inevitable hazards come and, and destroy everybody's fun. Uh, really cool. It's got kind of neat little bits that it look like uh, little bits of gold and little bits of obsidian, little bits of turquoise in, in the game. Uh, it's very inexpensive and it plays great. People tend to like it. We, I, it was a it was a big hit with the group I was playing with. Uh, I especially advise if you play this game to do what I do, which is if uh, everybody stays in and goes deeper into the the 
temple, you all shout, Adipa! <laughs> which adds to the fun. So then everybody flips over their card, and if it's unanimous, we all say, Adipa! So anyway, uh, we had a good time yelling Deepa. I think my wife was a wee bit embarrassed about that, but that's okay. That's what I'm here for, to make her embarrassed. Anyway, the game is called Ink and Gold. Um, it's uh, widely available, I think, still, and, and uh, easily recommendable. Cool, guys. Uh, well, uh, that's going to do it for this episode of DLC. We do have a parting gift coming up, so stick around for that. Uh, but I want to thank Kelly Wallach for being here. Thank you, Kelly. Yes, thank you for having me. This is great. Uh, where can people keep up with you and find out more about uh, all the all the stuff you're doing? Uh, well, you can go to IndieMegaBoost.com. Uh, we have a mailing list that you can sign up for. We send out information maybe like once a month on kind of what we're doing and where we're going to be and what games we're looking at. Uh, we're at Indie Mega Booth on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Kelly Wallach on Twitter, but I'm not actually personally on Twitter all that often. It's like my yearly, once a year, I'm like, I'm going to use Twitter more often. Um, <laughs> then it kind of just doesn't ever really pan out. Uh, it's the, probably for the best. Yeah, it's okay. It's a little stressful for me. I'm, I'm a, more <laughs> of a slow conversation person. So the, the pace is, makes me feel very old. I'm like, this is all moving so fast. I don't understand. Uh, also, uh, IGF.com and GDC, we're going to have the IGF awards coming up soon. So I also wanted to say, like, I think if, if you do like, um, indie games at all, I mean, the lineup this year, I think for IGF is super, super good. Like a lot of the games like you were saying that you were playing or, uh, that we had, that had come up in conversation. I think that there's a lot of really, really great stuff that even if you don't feel like you're traditionally a fan of indie games, there's there's some really interesting, cool things in there that I think would appeal to a lot of different people. So definitely check awesome. those out. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to, uh, to GDC and hopefully I'll run into you up there and yeah. see, see all the new, all the new indie games. It'll be great. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be awesome. Let me know. I'll show you around the booth and stuff. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, Christian, how about you? What do you got going on this week? Well, I have a new podcast called Department of Parenting. Uh, they're short. It's a, well, we did one kind of serious issue uh, episode recently that'll be coming out soon. But humorous takes on topics of about parenting and listener questions. They come out Tuesdays and Thursdays. It is called Department of Parenting. Um, Stand-up wise, uh, I just got back from San Diego, but I'm in San Diego a lot in April. If you are in April, I'm doing the weekend there, April 1st and 2nd. At the Madhouse Comedy Club, I am also there uh, the 22nd and 23rd at the La Jolla Comedy Store. And then I am there uh, going backwards in time. March 13th, I'm doing a show called Supply and Demand also at Madhouse. If you're in San Diego, I'm there. Otherwise, uh, Salt Lake City, I will be visiting you guys the 19th, 20th, and 21st of May. Uh, Yeah, that sounds good for now. Kanata, what do you got? Awesome. Well, you can always follow me on Twitter at Jeff Kanata, which is spelled with two N's and one T. We love getting your feedback at dlcfeedback at gmail.com. Great, great uh, emails this week. So thank you guys all for that. And uh, I have several shows for you to listen to and or watch. Uh, You can watch me on CNET by going to tomorrowdaily.com. Really fun stuff there. Talking about tech and science and video games as well. Uh, I have a movie review show called The Slash Filmcast. You can find that at slashfilmcast.com. And a comedy science show called We Have Concerns, which you can find at wehaveconcerns.com. All right, guys. Let's wrap this show up and give our friends a parting gift. Kelly, do you have a, uh, a parting gift that can get people through their week? 
Um, well, so if you haven't seen Deadpool, I would highly recommend going to see Deadpool. Um, that mm-hmm. was super, super fun movie. Um, I was in LA and saw it in like laser IMAX at the Chinese theater or something. Nice. Yeah, super cool experience. So that might lend itself to it. But that's probably one of the, my favorite like superhero movies I've seen in a while or anti superhero, yeah. however you want to call it. Um, and also there's a new Netflix show called Cooked, which if you're into documentaries about food, which I am, uh, it's kind of like their new one, which gives a, a lot of like history and science and like culture behind food and why people cook food, why they like the cultural reasons why they eat certain foods and things like that. And I watched the whole thing recently and thought it was really interesting. So if you're into that kind of stuff, I would check it out. Rad. Yeah. It does sound like something I would like. It's called Cooked and it's on Netflix. Yes. Christian, how about you? You got a parting gift? Yeah, I'm piggybacks off of Cooked Well. I think it was the New York Times. I could be, I don't remember exactly where, but there was a journalist that, you know, would never eat at the same restaurant. Maybe it was a This American Life. And um, he or she went down their neighborhood and ate at a new restaurant every time they went out to eat and never repeated and went down the block. Was that... Was that the one, yeah, where they like were really rigorous about it and had to go in order yes. of the street? And if a new one or uh, opened up, they had to go back, <laughs> if they, you know, where they had already been. It sounded like a really crazy disciplined thing to do. Yeah, I don't recommend <laughs> going that crazy, but I have started um, trying all of the restaurants around me. And some have been duds and some have been not. Uh, some have been great. And I don't know if you need to do that, I guess, as a, a parting gift, it would be try new things. Open yourself up to new experiences and the way I am doing that is going to the restaurants that I drive by every day and seeing if I like them. So far, I have no new favorites, but I have some that I would maybe go to with a group of friends, if that makes sense. But it's uh, it's been fun. Cool, man. Uh, I did something relatively new. Well, it's old, but new again for me. When I was a kid um, in high school and even earlier and, and a little in college as well, uh, I would always build my own PC. Always, 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 always. That's you know, I was into computers, and that's I was in the Bay Area in Silicon Valley in the years when you would go to computer fairs and you'd buy components really inexpensively, and you'd assemble your computer. That's what you did. Uh, and then I got all you know older and and had jobs and things that that required my time, and so I was like, I don't have time for this. I don't want to mess with it. I'm just going to buy pre-made PCs. If my gaming rig, it's going to be a pre-made. I'll buy it from a place. Well. VR is upon us, folks. In fact, this morning, the Vive went on pre-sale. Uh, and it uh, turns out I need to upgrade my computer <laughs> for to be able to play VR stuff. Took those, uh, you know, is your computer ready? And it was like, eh, it needs a new processor. And I was like, what? So I decided, I, I did some pricing around on things. And I, I really realized that I could save a lot of money by building a PC myself. I could harvest parts from my old PC and I could do it. And I hadn't done it in many, many years. And I was really excited. And so I dove in this week and built myself a new gaming rig. And I got to say, it was so much fun. It was so much fun. And the thing that was so cool, which is unique, I guess, to my experience, but stuff has really changed a lot since the last time I did this. Uh, and, and it's all improved. It's all gotten so much better and clearer and easier and more well thought out. The, the, the cases, like I got a really awesome new... Corsair case, uh, full tower case. The mistake I realized I made last time I bought a PC was that I wanted to go for like a really cool slick, like micro ATX design that was sort of as just the same size as a, an Xbox 360. And it was all compact and cool. Well, the problem with that is when new stuff comes up, it's really hard to upgrade your PC because it's all packed in there specifically. So I went, 
doing a, a full ATX case. That way I can, you know, have lots of room and, and these cases are so smart now. They're so, they've got ways to route the cords around. And I had so much fun sort of being artful about how I was making it a real clean inside and, and pushing all the cables back through the, the little, um, the little holes they have in the back. So it routes everything all clean and pretty and it looks good. And, and I would thought I, you know, educated myself about how cooling works inside and how you have to have flow with the fans and where to place the fans. And I did all this reading and, you know, you guys know, I love learning. And I just was like down the rabbit hole and sort of where PC design is right now and where components fit and how people are doing it. And it was so fun. And I saved a, crap ton of money and uh, made myself a really cool PC. And I just had such a great time. So I highly recommend it. The, the thing is, I kind of wasn't sure I could do it anymore. And so uh, if you feel like maybe you can't do it, just take it slow. Uh, you know, re- do a lot of reading. There's so many great resources on online to figure out what the best parts are to buy and how to assemble them and how to put them together. And there's so many great YouTube videos about, you know, how to put something together it was so much fun. It was like my whole weekend I, I spent like building this PC and now I'm ready for VR and I'm excited and uh, I'm really proud of what I did. Top line so. specs. What do you got? Well, I went, uh, I went big, man. I went big. You got to go big or go home. Uh, I got a, uh, I got an X99 Pro motherboard uh, and I got the uh, 5930K Intel i7 chip. Uh, those are my big, my big bad boy uh, upgrades. And I got, got uh, DDR4 RAM, uh, which uh, is faster. I haven't even overclocked the RAM yet, which I'm hoping to do because the, because it's, it, the motherboard supports up to 3000 uh, megahertz uh, uh, or not megahertz, whatever it is, hertz um, frequency on the RAM. See how much I learned guys. <laughs> I educated myself. Uh, but, I, but I was running it to it's native at 230, uh, uh, 20, 2333. So I'm, I'm planning to overclock and do some fun stuff like that. And uh, I'm so excited. Nice. Man. This it's, is gonna, it's, yeah. it's so fun. That's something I've been thinking. So I have to get a new desktop. I normally get a new one like every like three or four years or something. And I try and get something ridiculous. So I don't have to buy a new one so often. Fallout was one of the first games that I was playing where I was like, I need a new PC. <laughs> My yeah. PC is not there anymore. And I've been wanting, I built like a hand, like one when I was in college. And I used to like know I feel like when computers were simpler, when times were easier, like I used to know what all this well, stuff that's, was and like, I feel yeah, like, that's the thing yeah. when, when I was, I mean, I'm going to age myself here, but when I was a kid, it was like uh 386, 486 Pentium. Like it, yeah. it, it, it made sense. If it was a bigger number, it was a faster thing. Yeah. Not anymore. And there's Intel like has decided plus. to screw everybody yeah. and say, Oh, just have a random series of numbers <laughs> that indicate something. So who knows what you're getting? It, yeah. You have to really, delve in so yeah yeah, it's yeah i remember um when we were kids my dad uh was very much into computers so we always had one around and he was really adamant to make sure that we knew physically like how the hardware and stuff works so we would like take it apart and put it back together and it was always like this fun thing and i even did it with all my computers that i bought later because just to see how they were working and then at some point i bought like a pre-made desktop that i had to pay a lot of money for that i didn't have at the time when i was in college and i was like i'm not touching this thing like if i break it i'm screwed you know like i need this computer and then it's like yeah, things have felt like they've moved so far ahead that I feel like a little lost on it. So I've actually been debating about building my next one. I feel like after you talked about this now, I feel a little more, a little more convinced about the idea. Well, I'm telling you, I, I was very uncertain as to whether it, I, 
I had my wife like video me with the moment I turned it on the, for the first time. I was like, cause it's either going to explode <laughs> or, or I'm going to be happy. And, film, and film uh, I was just, yeah, exactly. Um, so you know, I was very uncertain as to whether I was just going to make something that didn't even work at all, but it, it, it worked all swimmingly. I, I really took my time. I really thought it through and, and didn't rush and didn't do anything stupid and, and, you know, made sure all the bits were, were put together. And like, I, I went with liquid cooling and like learned all about that. And it's, it's, it's really fun. And so I, I'm saying you can do it as long as you have the time and, and focus. It's, uh, it's really not that hard. Awesome. If an idiot like I can do it. Um, <laughs> Certainly I can do it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right, guys. That's going to do it for this episode of DLC. Uh, thanks to Kelly Wallach and Christian Spicer for, for this fun episode. We had a good time. Sorry that we haven't been live. Uh, we look forward to returning live at some point, hopefully in the future. Uh, but thank you to everybody that downloaded this episode. Uh, hopefully you'll tell your friends and pass the word along. Uh, we appreciate that. Also, your kind reviews on the iTunes or downloader of your choice are always useful as well. Uh, we'll be back next week with more until then think about what you put out into the world, make it a better place.